Hi. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We want to give a special thanks to Fran King, who is the latest patron to our Patreon account. Fran is one of our newer listeners, and we couldn't be more excited to be receiving that, uh, that donation from him. So, hey, Fran, thanks a lot, man. Also, big announcement, the Good Trash Genre Cast is now brought to you in partnership with SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. That's right, SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. For all of your comedy podcast and comedy writing needs, and also now, the Good Trash Genre Cast. Welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we discuss the films that you'll never discuss in a film today's course, although this week is most likely a, a, an exception, I would say, in not just horror-specific courses, but also in uh, sort of just general film studies, because it is super meta, and we are looking at um, the, uh, 1996's Wes Craven film Scream, which is a part of a trilogy of pornographic films uh, from, preceded by uh, Moan and also followed by Whimper. But we'll talk more about that here in just a little while. <laughs> <laughs> you fuck. <laughs> and uh, so we're very, very, very excited to be discussing uh, this film. We need to identify the disembodied voices surrounding the table. To my right, sir, if you would. My name is Dalton Stewart, and my mom and dad are going to be so pissed. Thank you very much. They already are. Cross the tail if you would, sir. I am Arthur Gordon, and please don't kill me, Mr. Goface. I want to be in the sequel. Uh, nice. Uh, to my left, sir, if you would. Hi, my name is Caleb Masters, and uh, well, good trash. This movie had me thinking. About two years ago, we started all hot and heavy. Nice solid R on our way to an NC-17, but now things have changed. Caleb, would you settle for a PG-13 relationship? <laughs> well, tits or GTFO, Caleb? Come on off now. Screen, off screen tits, uh, I'll consider it. Consider it. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. To my me at left, ma'am, if you would. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and Kizzle the Shizzle is is out. Very, very good. My name is Dustin Sells, and my mother was no Sharon Stone. And I'm so glad to be here with you all talking about the film screen. Now, to warn you, dear listener, 
This is an analysis show, not a review show. There will be spoilerific spoiler ridges. You will find out all the nitty-gritty details uh, throughout our analysis, but we try to give you a brief buffer in which we have a quick synopsis from The Voice of Cinema and then our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, and after that point, it's spoilers ahoy. So you have now been warned. Enter if you dare. Without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Voice of the Cinema, if you would, sir. Attempting to cope with her mother's murder, Sydney and her horror movie-obsessed friends are stalked by a murderer who seems to have a hard time letting the past go. For my money, dear listener, I would say Arthur Gordon would make a much better Ghostface voice than anyone ever. Thank you very much. I don't know, the guy they got's pretty damn good. Uh, they, the guy no, they no good. offense, Arthur. I, I would pick you, Arthur. Yeah, Arthur Gordon, I choose you. Um, there's a Pokemon reference somewhere in there. Oh, very, yeah. <laughs> uh, all righty. Well, we're going to move quickly now into those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Let's just reverse our clockwise orientation around the table. Miss Alexander Bohannon, I believe this is your first watch of the film. It is, sir, indeed. So what say you? I thought this movie was incredible, and I really want to watch it again as soon as possible. Um, this is going to become, I think, a repeat every Halloween viewing for me like this. I think this is required viewing for anyone. I know this kind of steps on, you know, my shelf or trash rating quite a bit, but um, anyone who loves horror, loves slasher films, uh, loves um, kind of meta questioning of um, genre and tropes, uh, anything like that, loves movies. uh, God, I can't. Anyone that is alive today should probably just see this movie. Um, It's just, it's just that good. And I know I can wax verbose about it, but I really like to hear what the rest of the guys who have seen this before would like to say. I really, I can't think of a single criticism for it, honestly. So um, that's it for me. Definitely a must watch. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohan and Mr. Caleb Masters. What say you? Oh, this is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I watch it every single year come Halloween season. And you know what's great about this movie is every year it ages that much better. Uh, You know, there's a lot of horror movies that really don't stand the test of time, but Scream is just as relevant and accurate as it was in 1996. Uh, You know, the writing is sharp, funny. Uh, There's a really brilliant uh, play on the form and the the, the filming techniques used in the movie with the editing and the sound cues, everything about it. This is an absolute must-watch for horror fans across the board. And I would would definitely go along with Alex in saying that I would recommend this to even non-horror fans because horror is such a piece of pop culture now that even people who don't watch it will get the jokes and the jabs and the laughs. It's your horror gateway drug. It's a, it's a gateway drug, and I, I honestly think this is probably the definitive piece of uh, slasher satire, because it works as both a love letter and a painfully, horribly sarcastic stab, no pun intended. Uh, I don't believe you. Genre. That pun was intended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you liar. Uh, well, when I wrote it, not maybe not so much. Uh, at the genre, Wes Craven uh, helped actually build himself. So, uh, yeah, absolute recommend. Thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Yeah, this is definitely a movie I enjoy a lot. Uh, I've grown to appreciate it more and more the older I get. I, I revisit this one uh, quite often and I get in the mood to watch them about once a year. I like everything about it. Like Alex said, there's not a lot for me to negatively critique here. Um, the way it references films, the satire it presents, the direction it takes, and the writing itself. Uh, one thing I want to point out, just because I, I really appreciate it and I love it, I was going to talk about intertextuality with my analysis, but I, I went in a different direction. But I really just want to shout out the uh, the opening sequences, which is a perfect homage to Psycho, uh, yes. with the killing off of the A-list celebrity who was uh, named to title build above everybody else, and to kill her off in the opening is just great moment. And so I, I love that nod back to uh, to Psycho. I think it's a fun commentary on slasher cinema, like Caleb said. Uh, it does a lot right. It gets a great soundtrack. Score is good. The cast are enjoyable. I 
don't have much negative say. Uh, the first one runs almost two hours, but it's paced really well. And I uh, think that's something that slips in the sequels. But overall, this is a really good movie. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you? Well, I actually, um, the last time I watched this prior to watching it for the show, I actually found myself uh, not loving it. Um, I was like, oh, this is starting to show its age, not in a good way. Um, and I'm not sure why I felt that way, because upon this rewatch, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it has aged, but in ways that are cute, like, oh, just about to watch a video, which is the funniest thing in the world for somebody to say now. So thanks for that, Drew Barrymore. Um, but no, overall, I think most of it, it works really well. I would not agree with Arthur entirely. I feel like um, that two-hour runtime is a little long. Because um, there's a quite a long span in the middle with a, not much happening, but that opening scene is so amazing. Uh, one of my favorite things about that scene is uh, where the the killer asks again who he's talking to, and Drew Barrymore says, "Why do you want to know?" And he says, "So I know who I'm looking at." And there's this great musical cue right when it happens. That's so it's so fucking good. Um, yeah, I, I think it's great. The reveal at the end is great. Um, the, the, the tense horror scenes are great. Um, the only thing for me that doesn't quite work, uh, some of the comedy does fall a little flat for me. Um, like it's trying a little too hard to be cute. Um, but overall, I think the jokes are strong. Um, it is a horror movie first that happens to just have a bit, a little bit of a comedic bent to it. I wouldn't go straight out and call it a horror comedy by any means. Um, but oh, again, overall, I'm, I'm going to echo what you guys have said. I did just want to point out there, I think there are some flaws with it. But overall, I'm with you guys. I think it's a, it's absolutely great. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What I have to say is I need to tell you a story about a boy and his first car. And the first time he got to take his first car to the first movie he ever watched. In his first car, I guess. I don't know. I didn't watch it in my car. It wasn't a drive-in. But I drove to the theater myself and got to see Scream. And it was fantastic. And I, I you were already a little horror buff then too, right? Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, very, very much. And I'd, I'd already, you know, double v, VHS um, VCR recorded every Friday Thirteenth movie I'd rented from the local uh, video connection video. Um, we love you. Thank you very much. I stole your movies. I'm sorry. They're uh, probably not in business anymore. It's not. your fault. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I'd already done all the Friday Thirteenth. You'd already been bit by the bug for sure. For sure. For sure. And this movie is great. And what I love about this particular film is that even though it is absolutely a horror film, it is absolutely a slasher film, it is also very much a mystery film. It's a very yes. much a whodunit. Yes. And I think that part of the code is what makes this probably Wes Craven's best film ever. Yeah, so it's brilliant. It's fun. It's very well paced. It is, again, Wes's best movie. Would maybe a New Nightmare be number two? I don't know. Um, I can go back and forth between those because of just my affection for the Nightmare series, but that's probably more my nostalgia than me being objective. You like New Nightmare better than the original? Yeah. I, th- I actually think that's fair. I just I, You're one of the first people I, I've met that has that opinion. I really like the original, but yeah, I, I'd, I'd put New, New I Nightmare. I think New Nightmare ahead. is great, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all good. But anyway, I like it very much. Uh, dear listener, I think what you can gather from our reviews is that we are very much biased pro, but we're not here to do this. We're here to get down to business. It's business. That's right, dear listener, and that business in question is analysis. I am so fired up to hear all the analyses being brought forth to this very table. I begin with our guest host this week, Mr. Caleb Masters. What say you, sir? 
Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of that Leotardian uh, incredulity to meta narratives going on here, because uh, it's it's probably the most uh, one of the more obvious ways to read the movie. I think by Leotardian he means John Francois Leotard, the postmodern theorist. That, that's what I said, right? Yes. Okay. Oh yeah, no, I just wanted to clarify for the dear listener. No, you said it right. I just want to make sure everyone. We put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Cookies are on the bottom shelf. So uh, obviously uh, there's lots of uh, allusions to life being one big movie. In fact, there's actually the exact line uh, that, uh, you know, it's all a movie. It's all one great big movie, and you can pick your genre. And I think the movie definitely has a lot of commentary to say on these uh, these stories. We tell ourselves this is how our life has to be within the case of Billy Loomis, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that he is his movie is a revenge flick. Mm-hmm. Now, now for everyone else around them, though, that means they're in a horror movie, and he insists that Sydney is uh, destined to be uh, the tragic murderer uh, who loses her virginity to She'll be her, his uh, her mother's final girl. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, and I, I think while the that's that's definitely the narrative that he's spinning the movie as a whole is trying to subvert that, uh, and it's 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 got a lot to say about um, the horror genre as a whole. Horror genre is very conservative. You do bad things, you get killed, you get whacked. Uh, and Wes Craven being the father, one of the fathers of the, the modern horror genre with Nightmare on Elm Street, it's like he, he created this thing and then he's going back and saying, yeah, well, that thing I made isn't really true. So that story about, you know, in a horror movie, if you stay a virgin, you don't do drugs, that means you're safe. Well, no, that's not necessarily true. Uh, th- things are a, little, a lot more complicated. And, and so there's a, con- uh, there's a consistent through line in the movie, which we get lo- lots of from Jamie Kennedy especially, trying to lay out the rules. Here's what a horror movie is. Here's what a horror movie does. But then at the end, we all learn that that's not necessarily the case. That, uh, you know, there's a, there's a tw- the twist is that Billy and Stu are the killers and that, uh, you know, they're kind of living their own little little delusional world. And I think that this kind of carries over into, like I said, the horror genre with uh, Wes Craven saying, yeah, the horror genre doesn't have to be this, guys. We've done this to death for the last, at this point, what, 10, 15 years. We can do something different. And I don't think uh, the horror genre really changed a whole lot after the movie, but this did kind of re- bring into question, what can the horror genre be? What should it be? And, there's, and, and, and it's, it, it's everything. It's, it's in the, the, the base uh, DNA of the movie, everything uh, from formalist techniques, the way they edit certain sound cues into like, like oh, you're going to turn around, there's going to be the killer, and then fake. There's nothing, and then, then they trick you. You know, it, it, it's it, it's in there to just totally subvert the expectations of uh, us viewers in a horror movie. And I think the the, the greater the, the picture he's trying to paint, though, is that you know horror movies are broken. They're not very exciting, uh, and they're predictable, and maybe a little too conservative. Uh, and so and, you know, kind of the conclusion wraps up. And I think Wes Craven goes on to ha- have a, has a lot more to say on this subject. And then you know, the following sequels, different aspects of the horror movie. Uh, but ultimately, I think this is a huge, just like crushing criticism of the idea of uh, of what the you know what the horror genre is supposed to be. And saying, guys, this isn't even really scary anymore. It's just a game, right? I, I totally agree, Caleb. I think that's an excellent reading. I appreciate that very, very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you in terms of analysis? There is so much going on uh, in this film. There really is. Uh, one of the things uh, that I do want to talk about, though, is something I thought about and it really didn't come into clear picture until I, I watched all four screen movies this week. And in the very beginning of part Hashtag two. Hashtag best week ever. It was pretty good. Uh, and th- this is, you know, we're not going to get a, going to get into spoiler territory uh, for any of the other screen films. But I do want to 
briefly touch on a couple of things that come up in some of the sequels. Uh, the very beginning of Scream 2, uh, Jada Pinkett, Jada Pinkett uh, not yet Jada Pinkett Smith, mm-hmm. uh, is going to see the opening night premiere of Stab, the movie based on the events of the first Scream film. And uh, she's being dragged to it by her boyfriend, played by Omar Epps. Uh, and she says, why would I bother to go see a horror movie? It's just a bunch of dumbass white kids getting killed for doing dumbass stuff. And she is absolutely right. It is a, There is not a single black person in Scream. Not one. Caleb pointed out there is actually a black reporter at the end. Doesn't count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are no black kids at that high school somehow. And Jada Pinkett Smith uh, in part two does say... Uh, African Americans have been done a like historically have been disserviced by the horror genre, and she's right. They have when black people do show up, they die very early by and large, particularly throughout the seventies, eighties, and nineties, the the start of the modern slasher flick as we think of it. So, what is the reason for this, um, other than uh, Hollywood being a, a machine that cranks out media for the masses? Uh, and with the majority of the country being white uh, and the majority of the people making movies being white, uh, a lot of the times African-Americans and other uh, people of color are left out of the equation when we talk about f- when we make films uh, in the, the studio machine. I think there's a larger issue here, though, and, and I think we see that with Scream, not just the, the you know sociological issues of inequality and media representation, but with who's choosing to tell what stories – um, most slasher movies are about upper middle class white kids, uh, and I think part of the reason for that is seventeen year old uh, upper middle white. I think part of the reason at play, though, uh, other than the larger, uh, you know, sociological uh, systemic issues that lead to underrepresentations in culture, uh, is the fact that seventeen year old white children, protect, particularly upper middle class seventeen year old white children, don't have anything to be afraid of. Um, at all, except for maybe drunk driving. Um, and an, a movie about drunk driving is just a public service announcement. That's not really a movie. I've seen movies about drunk driving accidents. Most of them are not very good. Um, so we have to create something for these children to be afraid of. Uh, young black people know that they got to be afraid of the police, uh, especially lower-income black people know they have to be afraid of crime. Um, most people of color have to be afraid of the world in general, especially the world of the United States, uh, because it is not a world or a culture that is conducive to uh, taking care of them. White people, though, have got it made. So we have to create something for them to be afraid of. And what we've created is psycho killers uh, who will slice and dice and gut them uh, because that's what they need to be afraid of. And I think Scream really does a good job of speaking to that. Um, we have to create something for you to be afraid of. And Billy Loomis even, I uh, know actually it's Stu that says, it's the millennium, motive is incidental, uh, which is something that really comes back around in part four uh, in a way that I really like. Um, but I think one of the other large issues is this idea of motive is being incidental. Um, there is nothing for you to be afraid of. We've created something for you to be afraid of, both in terms of the studio and the killers within the film itself. Um, you live in a, a secure, secluded uh, safe life hidden away from the scary parts of the world, so we're going to give you something to be frightened of. And it's the fact that somebody you know um, might decide to stab the shit out of you. Uh, and that is something that can happen. Um, it's something that I love, though, this idea of the motive is being incidental, because I, almost 20 years early, Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson uh, point out that this idea that would would not really hit the mainstream culture in a big way. There is no motive. The motive 
is being known, is being famous, and is being popular. And in a week uh, where yet another terrible mass shooting has happened, um, I, I think they really were saying something endemic and problematic about our culture. It is a culture where people think the only thing uh, that is important is to be known, regardless of how you get known. Uh, and turns out killing a lot of people will get you known, uh, which is not good. But my point is, they saw something 20 years down the pipe that was a culture that, and you know, whether it is um, hashtags and vines uh, and Instagram accounts or whether it is committing acts of violence, um, their motive is incidental. It is about people knowing your name. I, I think you're spot on. Uh, brilliant. Well done. I uh, appreciate that very, very much, Mr. Dalton Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you in terms of analysis? Uh, I want to look at Scream as a commentary on depression and fears of isolation. Uh, Scream establishes this metaphor in the form of a slasher film, uh, as it is the one horror genre that almost always depends on a group of friends. Uh, Within the narrative, Ghostface becomes a physical manifestation of the crippling effects of depression. The film begins one year after the violent murder of Maureen Prescott, the mother of our protagonist, Sidney. Within this year, Sydney loses her mother, has to live with the idea that she sent an innocent man to prison, has to adjust to a single-parent home, and deal with a boyfriend who constantly belittles her and tries to push her and guilt her into a sexual relationship. All of these factors are prime triggers for depression. Sydney reflects this ideal both in look and attitude. She carries herself in a constant state of weakness and protection. She constantly slouches and slumps throughout the film or is seen with her arms wrapped around herself, a signal that she feels that she is the only person that can comfort herself. Through the film, she also shows no signs of true joy or happiness. The one moment of happiness she allows herself uh, to have in our introduction to her in the bedroom uh, with Billy, she nearly immediately gives up once Billy tries to force himself past her boundaries. The settings within the film also cement these themes of isolation. All of the homes that Ghostface focuses on are isolated. Casey, Sydney's, and Stu. They are all removed from suburbia. Likewise, the school should be a safe place, but Ghostface attack takes a place within a mostly desolate bathroom. Even when Sydney leaves the bathroom, she only encounters one person in the hall. The school seemed large enough for several thousand people, but we only see that in the scope a handful of times. Craven does a great job of building the sense of isolation within this large school. The setting with the friends is important, as friends are one of the most important aspects of a person's high school identity. Uh, Friendships are important. They motivate people, push people to achieve or change, and are sources of affirmation, respect, and love. Our social groups, especially in high school, should be places of safety and comfort. This is ever truer for Sydney due to the loss of her mother and the consistent absence of her father. However, some people uh, being part of a group can be just as hard as being alone sometimes. They still feel isolated within their group. They still feel alone and as if they are missing something. This is established in the film, most notably through Tatum and Billy. Uh, Tatum should be Sydney's greatest source of comfort. However, Tatum noticeably fails Sydney, and as a result, puts Sydney into danger. Tatum's motives, uh, Tatum's motivations throughout the film are often selfish. They need to uh, stop and rent a video, which prolongs her trip home the night Sydney is attacked, and her desire to go to Stu's party, uh, which ultimately leads to the events of the final act, are 100% motivated by Tatum's desire. Nothing about Tatum can make Sydney safe, not even her home, which is violated by a call from Ghostface. These strikes will be constant marks against her in Sydney's mind, pushing Sydney to continually feel alone and isolated. Outside of Tatum, the only other source of trust uh, with Turner Peer Group is Billy, uh, who tarnishes this trust when she suspects him of being the murderer and he is arrested. Sydney is already fragile, and this episode serves to further shatter her mind in what she knows to be true or comforting. It is in her moments of greatest isolation that is she is attacked by Ghostface. In her mind, she may uh, reason that she is having to play second fiddle to whatever practice it is that causes Tatum to be late along with Tatum's desire to see Tom Cruise's penis. In this moment, she is attacked by Ghostface. 
the depression hits hard and fast and is temporarily set aside when Billy appears. However, this is quickly defaced, and as Sydney's life continues to spiral the next day, she is once again attacked by Ghostface, this time in the bathroom, when everything she knows seems to go down the drain. Her friendships, her relationship, and the image of her mother, which is questioned by the two girls in the bathroom, and even her own identity, as those same girls accuse Sydney of making it up for attention. As these emotions crescendo, Ghostface once again rears his head. It is in this same moment that the dialogue of the film presents the idea of teenage suicide, often a result of depression. Here the movie verbally connects the dots for us. In the third act, the metaphor plays out in the final attempted act of violence by our ghost-faced killers. Sydney has just discovered that her best friend is dead, her father isn't able to protect her or save her, and her mother was not the woman that she believed her to be. Lastly, the man that she loves and that said he loves her, who she is finally intimate with, reveals himself to be the source of all her external pain and suffering. This is where Sid's world crumbles, and she has to quickly come to grips with, her, uh, with where her life is. Ghostface is no longer an image. Now she is dealing with reality. She realizes that she has to return from the void and rely on her own strength and instincts to defend herself. In the final moment, surviving on her own tools, Sydney is saved by a former source of conflict. Gail shows up as a savior throughout the film. Though she comes off harsh and selfish, Gail is possibly the true representation of Sid's ego, trying to get her to come to grips and realize that she possibly put an innocent man in jail. In her honesty, Gail becomes a greater asset to Sydney than any of her previous friends. It is also in these moments that she is able to develop a stronger bond with someone who selflessly takes care of her in Dewey and, to an extent, Randy. At the end of the film, Sydney is stronger and has a more meaningful social group to surround her. However, the events within the film will only serve to hurt her more than help her. While she is able to find some of that strength and will to live, she will be tested again and again, a theme which is constantly revisited through the franchise. Well done, well done. Being a teenager is hard. Absolutely. Very, very good. I appreciate that very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what, have, what analysis do you bring? The climactic scene in this movie is full of tension between homosexuality and heterosexuality and perhaps even toxic max- masculinity. The film, oh, definitely. Yeah. The film grapples with what it means to be a gay man in a time where it was more socially frowned upon than it is now. Oh, however, I do want to mention that this is not... Um, my reading is not a, a method of uh, bisexual erasure, but I am reading this film using a more traditional dichotomous queer reading context. Throughout the film, we have the constant juxtaposition between between what it means to be a homosexual man and a heterosexual man. Men are constantly presumed in this universe to be heterosexual, just like what the film presumed in its meta context. Scary movies are full of heterosexual assumptions, just as discussed by Randy in the rules of horror section in the actual text of this film. When the big reveal occurs and the two males um, are, uh, as Billy and... Stu are brought out as the scream slasher. They discuss their bond in front of Sydney, and of course, um, Billy then metaphorically sodomizes his friend with the knife he had been using to metaphorically rape all the three men in this film uh, and one female, excluding the gra- death by garage door. Um, the motive for killing Sydney's mother was that she was, besides you know this discussion of we're in the millennium, we don't have a motive, um, was was in fact the fact that Sydney's mother was sexually active with with Billy's own father. The association of femaleness and promiscuity slash unworthiness is present in the in this context and perhaps causing Billy to consider homosexuality or at least not to favor women. And I am aware that in contact in reality that this does not cause someone to be queer in an actual human sexuality or psychology context, but in literature the context of the symbolism can't go unnoticed. And then, as a male, how do you deal with the anger of not being able to openly express your own desires? And 
in toxic masculinity context, this can lead to violent outbursts as demonstrated in this film. And to subvert the traditional power system and exploring one's same-sex desires, one may have to resort to more intense and extreme forms of getting what one wants. Well, thank you very, very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. What I want to say in terms of my analysis is I want to think about Wes Craven and his relationship to censorship. And uh, this idea that throughout his career he has made, you know, Last House on the Left, he's made the Night Around Elm Street films and others, uh, the Hills Have Eyes films, etc. And he has constantly um, had to go to the mattresses with the MPAA uh, with regarding uh, just uh, getting certain scenes. Uh, there, there's a moment where Tina falls from the ceiling when the, the whole upside down ceiling moment happens in the first Nightmare film. And just the length of time which you could see the body fall and actually hit the mattress, like that had to be cut it's like objectionable for like strange reasons it's so bizarre and uh you know the mpaa is this weirdly strange arbitrary thing and i mean i recommend this film is not yet rated you know most highly the times when they choose to to go after violence and choose not to go after violence or is also very interesting it, it, mo- I mean, obviously, New Line not being a major um, yeah. film company. Well, well even part of why. I mean, not even just violence, sexuality, the whole nine yards. It's just right. it's very selective depending on who's producing the film. Well, and the, the sexuality is the thing they usually go after more. Um, but the, the things that he had to go, I've read some of this, mm-hmm. Dustin. The things he had to go to bat for were stupid. Yeah, it, and it's not even again by horror movie standards, it's not even that violent. No, it's really not. And there were there are moments of that still in Scream where he has to fight the MPAA about mm-hmm. you know the length of time of a shot or what have you and whatnot. Now I want to uh, evoke invoke Tipper Gore and uh, conversations uh, of the late eighties early nineties regarding the relationship between violence in entertainment and violence in the real world, which I think to, is is very specifically what part of what Craven is trying to tackle Absolutely. in this film because he was frequently accused of uh, making films uh, Roger Ebert being one accusee in particular of making these sort of films that are inciting young people to violence video games gangster rap music and other things were also hey, Roger you know, Ebert had a lot of smart things to say about movies his, his stance on violence in cinema is not one of them well I, I, I kind of get I mean if I get I, where he's coming from I do I but. mean if you've seen 7,000 slasher movies if you're watching literally all the movies I could get yeah. the burnout and the frustration. For and, sure. And so, I mean, so his his vitriol towards it, I sort of chalk it up more to fatigue than I do to actual, you know, critical thought or analysis at that moment. But he does raise the same point that Tipper Gore and others do raise, is do these movies cause this? Of course, Billy Loomis' uh, statement is that uh, movies do not make uh, more killers. They just make killers more creative, and uh, which is funny and silly. But uh, it really is a question. And I think the whole I, idea... I think it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with the sentiment that's accurate as well. Yeah, fair enough, perhaps. And that the film itself is set around these series of red herrings. Who is responsible for the violence at Woodsboro? That is really the question. And that we are trying to pin this on somebody. And I think Wes Craven has felt himself to be the victim of a witch hunt in which there is raising and increasing violence in our society and there is a societal desire to try to find someone 
someone depended on. And I think he everyone's be, a suspect, right? I, I think he may be naming the slasher genre generally in his movies in particular as red herrings, as those who perhaps look quite guilty, as the Fonz does at moments in this film. But which, which I mean, the closest analog to uh, West would be the Fonz, I would say. Um, that no, he's he's not actually guilty of those sort of things. And of course, Last House and Left is about the Vietnam War. Uh, Hills Have Eyes is about nuclear testing. Uh, the Nightmare films is just about teenage fear and uh, you know the sort of broken and misdirected relationships with parents, etc. Uh, it seems to me that those mo- seem to be more the questions that he's wrestling with, using violence and these sort of slasher tropes to, to get through that. But the film is, I think, suggesting that the suspects you might think most easily um, um, able to assign blame to with regard to, and that's a tortured sentence I just made, uh, but those... Uh, but everyone's a suspect, so you but, had to say it. But everyone's a suspect. That those you'd most easily assign blame to perhaps are not the most likely or actually the actual culpable parties. Well, they're sitting around right after uh, the first murderer is, is found out about Randy's the first person they put the blame on. Right. Which is because the, he works at the video store and the watches the movies. And, of course, he's not guilty. Well, And then it turns out uh, he's not the only horror hound. Right. Because uh, Billy Loomis and Stu also both know a shitload about movies. And to Mr. Craven's thesis, I say he's correct. I don't think these, vil- these films cause this sort of violence. I think the sources of violence in our culture are their heritage, so to speak, in terms of our relationship with foreign policy and with war. They are surrounded about our sort of culture of guns. And again, coming back to the question of what's gone on this last week. Well, a culture of fascination with violence. Yeah. And uh, that film is maybe an expression of that, but now we're into a chicken and egg argument at this point. Absolutely. And that in, there, there are films that do this because we find them entertaining because there's something going on with us. And that finger pointing would be best inward instead of outward. And uh, to that, Mr. Craven, I say a hearty amen to your uh, Wheaton Bible College training. So, R.I.P. R.I.P. All righty, gang. Well, that sounds like some fun analysis. I really, really enjoyed all of our discussion uh, so far uh, this afternoon. Let's move on to the part of the show. We must render a verdict, and we must place this film on either the shelf or in the trash, and then recommend our else's or our instead's. Miss Alexander Bohannon, I'd like to begin with you. Uh, what say you, shelf or trash, else or instead? Oh, it's shelfable for me. I, I wouldn't mind buying this movie um, and watching it many times, especially Halloween time, for sure. This is going to be one of those movies I feel like I will return to every you know time it's seasonally appropriate, or not, but especially when it's seasonally appropriate. So I'm going to give it... 11, 11 out of 12.8 uh, Freddy Krueger Easter eggs. In terms of else's to pe- pair with it, then I would, I mean, definitely watch Scary Movie 1. I have it now because I didn't think I would get any of the jokes, but definitely going to go and do that now. Um, so Scary Movie 1 and 2, as well as, you know, go check out the classic Psycho and, you know, I mean, even American Psycho. Just like the kind of big big slasher intimidation type flicks. And then, of course, The Guest, because I'm just going to tell everyone to watch that movie. And, you know, stabby, stabby, et cetera. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. We keep stabby, stabbying right on through the show. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you, Shelf or Trash? And what is your elsewhere instead? Uh, Yeah, it's a shelfable film. I own the entire franchise. I I think they're all, uh, the first one's great. The other two and three are fun. 
uh, four is a, a great movie. I think it still stands as a high point for horror, especially from the mid nineties. It's a fun love letter to classic horror, uh, such as psycho, as Alex mentioned, Halloween, while also a scathing indictment of the pitfalls of the genre. I give it 11, a list celebrities being picked off in the opening moments of the film out of 13. I say you watch this with psycho and Halloween. Uh, if you only watch one sequel, check out four. Um, Lastly, go watch this year's It Follows, which plays with those rules that Caleb mentioned and uh, Final Girl Trope. Very, very good. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Caleb Masters, what say you? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? It's on the shelf once, and if I can find a good deal, it's going to be on the shelf twice when I buy the quadrilogy set on Blu-ray because I've got it on DVD. And, uh, you know, yeah, huge, huge kudos here. Um, uh, you know, uh, Else, also, definitely check out all the sequels, even three, which isn't great. Still worth seeing if, in, in the context of the entire series now as far as other else's go as uh along with my kind of uh reading of the film with the the kind of meta narrative uh meta meta movies uh definitely check out cabin in the woods no doubt about it that that takes the that takes the the kind of fun you have in the the, the comedic side of this and this movie and takes it to the you know times it by 12 it's just ridiculous and over the top but kind of saying similar things about the horror movie genre in general uh, i'd also check out uh sinister uh which is a really really underrated horror movie that mm-hmm. has a that is also a lot more subtle in how how uh, uh it's kind of critiquing the horror genre but it is, is definitely doing so oh it's meta in a way too i mean when he goes through that screen door there's something going on Oh, you yeah. know, so yeah, absolutely, well done. Yes, yeah, and then lastly, uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil because that's just a fun movie that's got a lot to lot to say about the horror movie genre as well. Excellent, thank you uh, very much. Uh, my rating would be six point nine. Leave Schreiber cameos out of a possible six point five. Excellent, thank you very much. That's more than what you had, so I like I like how much you like it, Mister Dalton Stewart. What say you? I think it's very shelfable, especially if you watch a lot of horror movies. Um, I think. It's easy to forget how influential Scream was when it was first released in 1996 because we've gotten so many uh, meta and postmodern horror films since then, and some of them I do think are better. Um, but it's it's easy to forget how important Scream is, especially because it came from a filmmaker who helped set the groundwork, who helped set the rules for horror films. Uh, so that alone, I think, makes it very important is the fact that it's a work of Wes Craven. For me, it gets uh, seven... Arthur Fonzarelli's stabbed to death in their office out of a possible 10. Um, I, I like it a lot. It's a lot of fun, and I, I definitely think you should check it out. And I think you should pair it with uh, three of my favorite uh, postmodern, some of them post-postmodern horror films, uh, and that's New Nightmare, uh, Cabin in the Woods, and You're Next, all of which are uh, meta in their own ways. I think Scream is meta in that it's talking about the rules of horror movies, and it's People who have seen a shitload of horror movies are being stalked, whereas Cabin in the Woods is more turning the mirror around and making the audience look at themselves with what they expect out of a horror movie. Um, and more, less about the rules and more about the uh, the medium in general. And I think Year Next is kind of more like Scream in that it's very much a self-aware film. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I also want to say Shelf. This movie is ever oh so shelfable. It is one of the great films of all time as far as I'm concerned. And uh, not just for horror fans or horror nuts, although they are going to have a great pleasure in there. It's one of those great movies in that it's a movie about the movies like Singing in the Rain and The Artist and other films. And Mulholland so, Drive. Mulholland Drive, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it is just really, really absolutely 100% that good. I do recommend Highly Scream 4 as a companion piece. Uh, the other two films, as we've said, are fine. But Screen 4 is really where it's at. And Wes Craven's new nightmare. 2 is interesting in fits and starts. 
Yeah, it is. It's it, it. I like to well enough. Uh, and and after that point, you know, of course, just you know, uh, immersing oneself in the horror genre and uh, going at that sort of thing, I think it'd be great. As far as just good old suspenseful horror and uh, not knowing what's going to happen next, I want to recommend a Danish film called The Vanishing, um, which is not the same thing at all. But as far as like the emotional knots you are tied in as you watch, I think it does uh, hit a similar place. And so I recommend it as well. Thank you very much, dear co-hosts. We now come to the part of the show where you can be part of the conversation, where you can talk about what we said and how we should have said it better and what we left out in our saying of the things, and that is social media. Mr. Arthur Gordon, you know anything about that stuff? Uh, yes, you could find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast, one word. Uh, in regards to pop culture, uh, current guest host Caleb Masters uh, talked about the new trailer for Inurito's The Revenant and said that Inurito is coming back for Oscar seconds, and I would not be opposed to that. It looks good. Uh, Ashley Raines said she's fired up about Crimson Peak, which all of us are as well, and by association, she's fired up about Tom Hiddleston, which we are all as well. Uh, Shane Arrington gave a shout-out to The Martian, Crimson Peak, and Sicario, saying they are all must-see. I am also excited to see those. In response to our throwback to Pontypool, uh, which was our throwback Thursday post. Shelby Park says that the first 45 minutes or so were great. Uh, it was very suspenseful and original. Uh, it got ridiculous really fast, though, and he then went on to clarify that he wasn't a fan of the language as a source of zombieism. That's what works for the film. Wrong. Not everybody's cup of tea. So that happens sometimes. Uh, commenting on our report of the Death Note adaptation uh, that Alex posted on Facebook, Ashley Raines was a little frustrated with the whitewashing of the cast and asked they couldn't find a quali- qualified Japanese actor because... Over on Google+, Plus, Mike Kurt said that The Guest was a blast of a movie. We all agree with that as well. And in response to The Walk, uh, Stephanie Wanamaker mentioned the news that viewers of The Walk were getting motion sickness. And uh, But regardless, she thinks the movie looks fantastic. I could understand that motion uh, sickness. Accurate. I could hardly look at the screen. Yeah, if you had motion reasons. sickness, this would definitely be a red flag because they, they mess with you a lot. Yeah, if you have vertigo, don't, don't go to this one. first, dear listener. That's our recommendation. And so that's what we have coming in from Facebook and Google+. Plus. Uh, you could also email us goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about social media means by which conversations What's held? What's the point? It's all the same. Some stupid 20-year-old trying to get attention by making fun of the news when they should be saying something interesting about their emotion, inner emotional turmoil. It's insulting. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Honor cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Any feedback coming in from that twitzy Twitter? Uh, a little bit. Um, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, primarily uh, a lot of retweet and favorite love, which you know we love, listener. Uh, we got a follow from the OKC Film Club. We were invited by uh, Eric King of Deus Ex Media to uh, come uh, be part of their uh, Oklahoma City Film Club Horror Fest double features. Uh, they'd be happy to have us there. So thanks, Eric King. That's at Uncanny Karloff if you want to follow him. Uh, follows from uh, people with names that are hard to read, so I'm assuming they're bots. Uh, so... But lots of new followers, so that's fun. But I want to get to the most interesting uh, bit of feedback that we received this week, which was uh, a, a bit of a, a bit of a discourse that took place with um, whoever runs the Wormwood colon Road of the Dead Twitter account. So uh, last week we tweeted a picture while we were recording about that we were going to be talking about uh, Wormwood, uh, and uh, Wormwood tweeted back at us and was like, "Oh, cool, that's awesome, thanks, guys." Um, and apparently they listened to it because they replied to Arthur's post of the episode um, and said, uh, quote, Jesus, thanks for taking the time, guys, but I had to turn it off. It was like being lectured by a coach after losing at football. Um, Arthur went on to 
basically be like, well, you know, to be fair, we, we said we wanted a sequel, and from a production standpoint, it's awesome. It's just not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, and then there was kind of a cute back and forth between Arthur and the, the Wormwood Twitter account, which I assume is run by the writer, uh, because Arthur mentioned that he was really excited about the ghost film they were, uh, that the, that team was working on. Uh, and they said, yeah, I'm supposed to be working on that right now, actually, instead of tweeting with you. Um, and Arthur was like, hey, since we're talking, uh, what, what's a mashup you'd like to see, i.e. Mad Max meets Dawn of the Dead? Uh, and I think at this point he was a little frustrated, so he said Bambi meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre, winky face. Um, I do want to say, I feel like we were pretty nice. Um, if anybody from Wormwood's listening right now, you should go listen to our episode over Jack if you really want to see us rake something over the fucking coals. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, I didn't ever jump in on this Twitter dialogue uh, that Dustin had with him too. Dustin mentioned that I, you know, that he gave a strong recommendation for horror buffs, just not for everybody else. Um, I'm curious what they, what we said. Yeah, I felt like we were quite nice as well. I do too. I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, yes, we, we took some pot shots at uh, the budget, but I mean, that's understandable. It's, you know, I just, I'm, I did mention that I, I'm always annoyed by CGI blood and CGI gunshots. Um, but that's just that's a personal preference. So yeah. I'm really I'm wondering if it's the analysis section that turned them off. I I don't know because I felt like we were really nice. But if any of the the people behind Wormwood happen to be listening to this, I would be curious at what point uh, whoever runs the Twitter account, who I assume again is the screenwriter, chose to stop listening. That was the most interesting bit of feedback we had coming over Twitter this week. So I was just it's a head scratcher for me, I guess, and it caused me a lot of anxiety. I'm vaguely befuddled as well. I'd like I, I would like those questions to be answered equally. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Of course, you can give us uh, feedback and ratings at iTunes, also the Stitcher Internet Radio Podcast uh, slash Radio App, and also there at the uh, Good Trash uh, Podbean site, which is uh, goodtrashhundercast.podbean.com. Thank you very much for that. Let's move on, though, as we always do. I think as I look upon my watch, it's time to play the game. And now Lemmy from Motorhead has told you all it's time to play the game and the obvious game. You know, it, this is this is it, it's more of a game, really. What's your favorite scary movie? That's right. What's your favorite scary movie? Brought to you by Scream. Scream. If Scream's your favorite scary movie, that's kind of a weird choice. I wonder how many scary movies you've seen. Excellent. I decided to do a different voice this week. I appreciate that very much. Well, Mr. Dollar, why don't you go ahead and start out for us? What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, fuck. This is hard. Uh, guys, this is really hard. I spent a long time thinking about this, so I decided to go with uh, a, a, a new pick and an old pick, both of which kind of, I think, show my, my general taste with horror films. My, my new pick is The House of the Devil by Ty West. Um, my old pick is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think what both of them do that I love when a horror movie does it. I mean, and there are other horror films that do this that I really like. Um, my, my favorite thing, The Shining does this uh, for another old one, and Lords of Salem does this for another new one, both of which are horror films I like a lot, just not as much as these two. What all four of those films do, though, is they build tension throughout. And there are little gasket. It's, it's like, a, like a release valve, and they release tension occasionally. But by and large, they build and build and build and build and build and build and build. And then finally, the last 20 minutes of the movie is a nonstop, crazy-ass, bonkers, uh, just complete deluge of terror upon you. And that's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre is so good at this. It is so good at this because the movie, it's a slow movie. People, you know, think about the reputation of this film uh, and they forget 
that it builds and builds and builds and builds. It's really not that violent throughout. It's not even that violent at all, uh, but it builds and builds and builds. And then finally the chase happens uh, between Leatherface and the final girl, whose name I forget, both character and actress. Uh, but that chase goes on forever, and then they, she gets captured, uh, and then there's the dinner scene. I mean, all of this stuff happens within like the last 20 minutes of the movie, and everything that precedes it is fairly uneventful. I mean, there are some little moments of scares. And House of the Devil does the same thing, where it just builds tension for so long. And you almost get put in the same mindset as a Jocelyn Donahue, who plays the babysitter, is that you kind of find yourself bored, but not in a bad way. You're just like, you can you feel like the babysitter. You're just like, okay, when's this night going to be over? But as a viewer, you feel, when is the bad shit going to happen? And I love, love when horror films do that. I think Alien does that really well as, uh, as well. It builds for a long time, and you know something bad's going to happen. And then it finally does. And it's just like, oh, god damn it. Ah! And it's so tense once the bad stuff starts happening. So those are some of my picks for my, my favorite scary movies. Very, very good. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what are your picks? I'm a horror noob, you guys. You guys know this. Say this every year. Say this about every episode. So um, actually, my favorite horror movies have actually been two that I've introduced to through this show. Um, first of all, You're Next, which is a show we covered last year. You're yeah, Alex doesn't watch horror movies unless we make her do it. Yes. For the record. Accurate. Um, I Yes, Your Next is an amazing film. You should definitely watch it out. It is bloody and gutsy and fun and everything about it I would watch again in a heartbeat. It's definitely one I wish to own as well. Um, and then another one that I didn't have to watch for the show but was inspired to um, because you guys have covered it on the show is Pontypool, yes, that we have discussed before. Um, I, think the, I think the word zombie is... that together. Is Yes, we did. It is. Uh, it is a film we watched together. I think the word zombieism is brilliant, utterly brilliant. I think that um, I feel bad for totally spoiling that movie, though, like just now. Thank you very much. Kiss means kill, dear listener. That's what you learn. Thank you uh, for that bit of analysis. Mr. Caleb Masters, what say you? Uh, tough picks, because I uh, like Dalton. You've got the old and you've got the new, and it's like, what do I go with? Uh, so I'm going to give you a couple of each very quickly. Uh, to kind of give you an insight into what type of horror movies I really dig. So more recently, two films that have come out in the last three or four years. Uh, the Babadook, yes. which is debatably not even a horror movie, but like I love the psychological edge to it. Like You're inside this woman's head as she's slowly descending into madness, or is she? Uh, and like the, the way that the... the, the just the aesthetic and everything, you know, it gives you that. It, it's creepy without having to have any blood. Or oh, it's any. a spooky ass house. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that kid is terrifying, terrifying, obnoxious, but kind of like in a creepy sort of way, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's it's one of those things where it, it really gets inside your head and makes you think about your own house, and you know, one of those types of movies, right? Uh, the other new one would be that uh, kind of does, does a similar thing would be The Conjuring. Uh, which, again, is a haunt, another haunted house. Very, very, very low on the gore factor, but it's more about just playing tricks with your head yeah. and, and really getting under your skin and making you think when you're laying in bed at night, thinking, oh, my gosh. And I'll just go with one classic, and it's got to be John Carpenter's Halloween. First yes. horror movie I saw. Uh, first pair of breasts I ever saw. Uh, you know, So there's some nostalgia there. But it, it was, again, that was the, my introduction into the horror movie genre as like a, a grown-up horror movie, right? I couldn't tell you the first horror movie I saw. I have no idea what it is. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon. Gordon, what are your picks? Um, I would say, I would also, uh, as a classic, I would go with uh, John Carpenter's Halloween as well. I actually just watched it before we recorded. Um, it's a classic. It 
Carpenter's eye is just phenomenal. The way he uses the camera, the way he moves the camera, uh, the the opening point of view shot, the the long takes he's using. It's just a brilliant movie, I think, from a a, a um, creative standpoint and from a director standpoint. Uh, also, I would uh, recommend a movie I really enjoyed as a teenager, and that's Gore Bravinsky's The Ring. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Naomi Watts. Uh, I really like supernatural horror, and so that's that's a fun one. I think it's it's really creepy. It's imagery is great. The aesthetic's great. It's just so so creepy, and I think it's just a really fun movie to watch. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. I'm going to name all the Dracula movies because I just am a fan. The scaredest I've ever been watching a film. The one film that gave me nightmares more than any other was 28 Days Later. Um, just saying that is what it is. I mean, maybe how just old a you would have been in your 20s when I was in my 20s, out. and it scared the bejabbers hey, out of me. Listen, uh, you know, a, a totally populated city like you, uh, like uh, London, totally empty. That's kind of terrifying. Just the imagery. It's, it's scary. I had nightmares. It scared me. Um, now, as far as like my favorite kinds of scary movies, they're more or less chillers. And so, I, if I was going to say two films that I could watch and watch over and over and over and over again, uh, and they're sort of like within the wheelhouse of what I like and scary, they are the chiller more so than mm-hmm. just the flat out scary movies. One oldie that's the Cat People from Four. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, which yeah. has got a lot of implied violence and also um, kind of sexual subtext, which I find to be very, very interesting. And then recently, um, Guillermo del Toro was a producer on a film called The Orphanage, which um, is both very, very scary and also just very, very chilling as it resolves itself. And I will say a little more about that. Caleb is, uh, is has also seen the film. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I it? saw that when I, I'm not. I saw that when I was in middle school. Outstanding. Well done. Uh, thank you very much for that. Well, there you go, dear listener. We'd love to hear your picks. What's your favorite scary movie? Um, so do tell us that whenever you get the chance on those means of social media that we've already discussed. But now as we come to the end of our show, we do what we always do, and we talk about what's got us fired up in pop culture. Mr. Caleb Masters, are you fired up this week? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting there. Uh, so yesterday, I went and saw The Martian in the theater, and it was great. I think uh, I'm going to go see that after we get done recording. Ooh, you should. It's great. It's fun. It's, it's a good way to kick off the fall movie season. It's, I, I don't know if it's going to be like necessarily like an Oscar contender per se, but you're like, wow, we're finally we're out of the, we're out of the slums of September. It's, this isn't pop, popcorn blockbuster. It's just a fun movie with a little more depth and some higher quality acting and writing than what we've seen in the last few months. Uh, so I'm just really excited about the fall movie season with uh, Steve Jobs coming out later this year and The Revenant, as uh, Arthur mentioned earlier. Lots of good stuff coming out, uh, and it's a really exciting time of the year for people who love movies. Uh, and then secondly, uh, as, a, as a really diehard Game of Thrones fan, with a, you know, uh, there's a new book uh, coming out. Now, not The Winds of Winter. Be correction. That's going to come out eventually, eventually. one day, maybe, uh, if uh, George R. R. Martin makes it long enough. Uh, now we have right now is a Knight of the Seven Kingdoms. Now this is actually a pre prequel series featuring characters from over a hundred years previous to the the, the 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 Song of Ice and Fire series. Mm-hmm. So it's more for fans who are really interested in that world and interested in what the the, the world ruled by the Targaryens were and everything. So I'm really excited to get some more Westerosi fix in the meantime. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up this week? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I made time this week to check out Black Mass and Pawn Sacrifice in the cinema. Uh, I'm not real wild about Black Mass. It's okay. It's fine. Uh, Johnny Depp gives a pretty good performance that gets lost behind a fuckload of makeup that's just really distracting. Those blue contact lenses, that hairpiece, that nose, really distracting. Uh, Joel Edgerton's acting really hard. Um... Corey Stoltz and Kevin Bacon and, um, oh, God, there's somebody else. 
Um, Adam Scott all have really great one scene performances. Um, they, they have like really great moments. If you if you're interested in the story of Whitey Bulger at all, go watch The Departed, which is kind of loosely based on him anyway, and just enjoy that because it's a far better movie. Um, Pawn Sacrifice, on the other hand, I really enjoy. And now I am kind of leery of biopics in general, but I, I'd been hearing good things about this, so I went and checked it out. And Tobey Maguire uh, gives a really great performance as Bobby Fischer. Um, the movie does the thing that I think is the best thing that a biopic can do, which is it focuses on the small moments in a person's life. Um, they do do a little bit of you know his childhood, a tiny bit, a tiny bit of his teenage years, but by and large... The film focuses on his match in uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, with um, Spassky, Boris Spassky, um, this, you know, the, the chess match of the century. Um, Liev Schreiber doesn't get enough time in it, uh, much like he does in Scream. Skip Black Mask, Black Mask, Go See Pawn Sacrifice. I really dug it a lot. Uh, and finally, I, I've been avoiding the trailer to Legend, which is a bad title, to a movie that looks great, which stars Tom Hardy and Tom Hardy as the Cray Twins, which were a couple of notorious gangsters in the early 60s in London. Um, I'd been avoiding the trailers because I knew I was going to see it anyway, but they showed a trailer for it at a, one of the... I saw Black Mass and Pawn Sacrifice on the same day, so they showed a trailer at one of those movies, and I was just like, oh my god, this is going to be so good. It looks absolutely astonishing. That's what I'm fired up about this week in popular culture. Thank you very much. Uh, Miss Alexander Bohannon, are you fired up this week? I am fired. Um, so one of my friends has d- decided that he's going to start a, uh, a wrestling commentary blog. Um, and I just wanted to give my friend uh, James uh, a plug on here. So it's the highrentdistrict.wordpress.com. And it, he said that his approach isn't necessarily, it's not going to be inside baseball. It's not going to be um, like just like pure match commentaries, but it's just going to be like um, I think kind of analyzing the matches and the matchups more critically. And then I think his end goal is to try and do his own podcast over um, wrestling content. But this is his kind of springboard into, into doing that. This weekend, one of, uh, I went to a fall policy conference. I am a, a okay policy fellow. Um, and one of the interesting tidbits that I learned this weekend, a sad tidbit, is that a third level apprentice at Chipotle can earn $50,000 annually, which is $4,000 more than a 25-year uh, Oklahoma teacher with a PhD. It's effed up, and it's probably my favorite sad factoid of the evening, especially because um, that image was displayed, overlaid with a Chipotle burrito um, next mm. to it. On um, the plus side, you know Chipotle pays their workers a, a living wage, so uh, they do. enjoy a delicious Chipotle burrito. And, and that's about it for me. Oh, I did go and see... Um, Friend of the show, Heath Huffman, hosted a Bernie Sanders uh, fundraiser uh, comedy show this past weekend at downtown OKC. Well, it's in Oklahoma City, whatever. And it was a really good show, and they raised a lot of money for Bernie, but I'm not going to get on a political soapbox. So that that was a fun show, though. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohan. And I am fired up about a single thing, and that is the sports ball. Dalton can roll his eyes now. Uh, well done. Um, my Texas Rangers are exactly three outs away from winning the division right now. And it's almost October. Is that it's a good almost thing? playoff. It's, yeah, it's good. So okay. do, will they go to the World Series? They, they will go to the playoffs. It's, it's October now, by it's the way. It's October now. I know. But October actually begins tomorrow um, because that's when the baseball final playoffs begin to happen. So the end of the season happens today. Sports ball can't even 
even do the calendar right. Anyway, um, we were the worst, one of the worst teams in baseball last year, and we are about to win our division. Uh, assuming we don't choke, we're nine to two up right now. We've got to get three outs. Um, I think we can do it. And I'm very. Are you very, still speaking English? Yeah, I'm very very excited about that because I love baseball. So there you go, dear listener. We'd love to hear what you're fired up about as well. By all means, send us that stuff via those magical means of social media. Now we've got to tell you, we're continuing our Sharktober marathon with more horror films, but every single month there is a host pick. This month happens to be my host pick. Oh. And um, you know what I like to do is I like to keep it weird, y'all. And uh, so this week's film is Beyond the Black Rainbow. Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. So there you go, dear listener. Take a look at Beyond the Black Rainbow. By all means, take a look at Scream and then have a conversation because that's what makes watching the movie so much more fun. And until then, we'll see you next time.
On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. Disappearing land, but hidden in his coat is a red rat. 